Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is a deep dive into our J.P. Morgan 2022 Global Alternatives Outlook and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Polkit Sharma, Head of Alternatives Investment Strategy and Solutions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having me. So, Polkit, before we dive in, I wanted to provide a little bit of macro perspective, just given the turbulent start to the year. And obviously, mobility has rolled over as Omicron has spread rapidly. We've seen some mixed economic reports, some suggesting that things are still on track, but others suggesting that things have gotten a little bit softer. And when we think about the outlook for the economy this year, we're still looking for an above-trend pace of economic activity when all is said and done. What the spread of Omicron has really meant to us is that we're looking at a redistribution of the growth that we were expecting this year. So rather than seeing a very strong first quarter and then a gradual normalization in growth over the course of 2022, we think instead we're going to be dealing with a bit of a softer start, followed by a relatively firm and solid middle two quarters of the year before seeing things gradually approach trend into the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023. Now, if there is a silver lining to this slower start to the year, it's arguably that inflation may cool a little bit faster than expected. Obviously, that feels a little strange to say on a day where inflation printed at its fastest pace since 1982. But we do think that as growth moderates into year end, and furthermore, as some of these cyclical factors finally begin to ebb, we will see inflation begin to come back down. We're looking for something between 35 and 4% by the end of this year, and then something more in line with the Fed's target by the end of 2023. Now, mentioning the Fed, you know, the math around what they're going to do has become infinitely complicated. You have some people calling for a hike starting in March and seven hikes over the course of the year as a whole. You have other people who think the Fed will fail or struggle rather to get off the ground. And what I would say about the Fed is I think they're going to react to the data as it comes in. Something that Jay Powell said during the press conference that I think was overlooked is, He used the word decision 15 times in the press conference, but 14 of those 15 mentions were in the context of no decision has been made. And so the Fed's going to react to the data. Let's not put the cart before the horse. They're going to start hiking in March. The question is how many hikes they're going to get through the door. And obviously, this has shaken both public equities and public fixed income over the course of the past couple of weeks. And so Polkett, based on that macroeconomic backdrop, based on the outlook for inflation and rates, as well as volatility, what are some of the tactical or more near-term investment attributes within the alt universe that investors should be considering here in 2022? Thanks for the background, David. As we sit here in February of 2022, I know big picture level, we believe that private markets actually look mispriced today in general versus the public markets and offer more value. Now, contextualizing some of the points you made, we are definitely not in a period of tremendous growth or risk taking like we saw in 2021 post vaccine, which actually favored equity like assets. We're also not in a risk-off environment like the first half of 2020, which favored fixed income-like assets on a relative basis. It seems like we are somewhere in the middle on the uncertainty spectrum, with a path to normalization becoming more and more visible. So in this construct of medium uncertainty, where inflation risk actually is its stickiness and economic 
growth risk is on the downside. And as you said, monetary policy vagaries are a constant question mark. We think that public market volatility is the only certainty, albeit at the medium impact level. So from an over-under tilt and investment attribute perspective for private alternatives, if I look at the entire ALS universe that comprises hedge funds, real assets, private credit, private equity, and real estate, we can bucket our asset allocation convictions from multiple lenses, actually, looking out over the near term. So let me highlight a few examples. So from a return source perspective, we like alpha rather than beta or purely market-driven strategies today, and we like fundamentals-driven returns rather than those from technical factors. Now, from a macroeconomic or rate inflation sensitivity perspective, we like floating rate, shorter maturity assets versus fixed rate, longer duration assets, and assets which offer positive real yields and mechanisms to grow those yields rather than depending on pure multiple expansion. And also like higher quality in that space with inflation linkage mechanisms. Another lens is a thematic lens. So we like integration with mega themes of tech innovation, demographic shifts, consumer and sustainability. And then from a asset selection lens, we like strategies that focus on the middle market in the financial space. And we like stronger counterparty exposures, higher quality assets pools, and assets where we have the ability to grow organically or that can offer operational improvements. And finally, another lens is the lens of execution, where we like active management. We are in a golden period for that with record dispersion and also ESG integration, where we can do good and do well at the same time. That's awesome. Really helpful to kind of get a sense of what the various attributes are that you're looking for this year, given that macro picture. Given those attributes that we discussed, I think that the next step for investors is figuring out some sort of framework for allocating to alternatives. So can you help us kind of merge those attributes with a framework that you like to employ and specifically call out some of those areas where you have particularly high conviction as you think about the outlook from this point forward? Sure. So from a framework or let's say an outcome lens perspective, the one word that best captures our high conviction is hybrids, which according to the Oxford English Dictionary is something that is the product of mixing two or more different things. Let me give you some real life examples of why hybrids are important parts of our lives now and their application in investing. So our lifestyle has become more and more hybrid. For example, our work environment has become hybrid, where we enjoy the office camaraderie, but we also appreciate work-from-home efficiencies. We are buying hybrid vehicles, which are relevant today as gas prices rise and climate considerations become important. We are getting more and more accustomed to a new way of hybrid living in the backdrop of COVID and COVID-accelerated changes. Similarly, given the low but rising rate, moderating growth, and potentially sticky inflation backdrop, we think Sourcing upside while protecting for downside is key, which is a classical hybrid outcome and can be best delivered by hybrid alternatives, which offer a combination of both fixed income and equity-like outcomes. That is, they provide public equity non-correlation and stability, as well as upside alpha or growth potential. So from an outcome-oriented framework perspective, we can simply divide hybrid alts into three parts. Fixed income-like hybrids, pure hybrids, and equity-like hybrids. And finding those high-conviction strategies within each sleeve is a good way to build and position your alternatives in private market portfolios. So let me give some examples on each of these three segments. Fixed income-like hybrids, as the name suggests, 
provide potential for enhanced yield premium and downside protection. So investors can source inflation protection here through floating rate securities and asset-based means. We like less crowded trades here that offer stronger structural protections and better financial covenants. So opportunities here exist in the middle market direct lending space, consumer credit, and real assets-based lending. Pure hybrids, which is our highest conviction category, these provide a potential for public market diversification and enhanced returns in portfolios. So hedge funds, for example, offer opportunities to capture higher dispersion in the public markets amid rising rates. We know volatility creates dispersion and creates sources for relative value, which creates alpha opportunities, along with their ability to short, which is a powerful diversification tool, making them thus pure hybrids. Core core plus real assets are another form of pure hybrids. In a rising rate and inflationary environment, they offer positive and stable yields and local uncorrelated sources of returns for diversification alongside cash flow growth from a higher quality pool of assets for upside potential. In particular, in the near term, we like core core plus real estate, where we see a combination of cash flow growth, supply demand balance, and a long lead time to build these assets along with accretive leverage as combined tailwinds. If 2021 was a year of multiple expansion, 2022 is more about fundamentals and sector selection with a focus on asset quality here. And as a side note, real assets in general do well in periods of high inflation. And as you mentioned, David, we saw another 7.5% print, highest in 40 years on inflation today. Real assets have passed through mechanisms because of their long lead time to build these higher quality assets, their cash flow growth potential, in fact, fixed rate debt on these assets, all of that acts as a natural mitigant also against rising rates. Supply side issues and also valuations are obviously something to watch out for in this space. And finally, equity-like hybrids, as the name suggests, provide potential for enhanced returns with relatively greater resilience. So a targeted approach in the small mid-private equity segments where there is a focus on sourcing innovators, which offer lower entry multiples and scope for cash flow and operational improvements are the go-to areas. We like growth equity, late-stage venture capital, where a product market fit has been established and de-risking has already occurred via the path to profitability in new economy sectors. And we also like repositioning and bolt-on strategies in the hard asset space as a way of capturing more resilient upside. So this hopefully gives a framework and also high, high conviction in the various three segments of hybrids within the alternatives universe. That was very helpful and certainly helps me in my mind build a framework for thinking about those three key sleeves that you laid out. I want to shift gears a little bit. I noted earlier that public markets have been off to a bit of a rocky start, particularly given everything that's been going on with inflation and the Fed. You also mentioned the outcome-oriented approach that we always pound the table for here at J.P. Morgan. How do you think about alternatives solving some of the problems that public market investors have faced so far this year? And furthermore, maybe taking a longer-term view, how do you think about solving the problems going forward over the longer term? Okay, from a longer-term perspective, since we talked about the near terms, we anchor our views on our long-term capital market assumptions. So in our 2022 long-term capital market assumptions, which is a 10 to 15-year outlook for major asset classes, we project a 4.3% U.S. dollar total base case time weighted returns for a balanced 60-40 global stock U.S. bond portfolio. That 4.3% is down from a 7 to 8% net forecast of the same 60-40 portfolio 10 to 15 years ago. So in this 
paradigm, almost all alternatives in private market assets plot above that stock bond frontier, meaning purely in return and risk terms, they offer better returns and better risk-adjusted returns. So almost all paths to achieving a 7 to 8% plus balanced long-term total returns at the overall portfolio level pass through some combination of alternatives and active management. And also it's no new news that the compression of prospective stock bond returns has been due to the confluence of supportive monetary and fiscal policies, and also as a consequence of historically compressed yields in the fixed income space. In fact, the yields are negative or flat from a real inflation-adjusted perspective on one end of the spectrum, and there's elevated equity valuations on the other end, which are the true source of those headwinds. So these challenges are actually less prevalent in many categories of alternatives. They thus remain more mispriced broadly speaking, versus the public markets. For example, even in the depth of the COVID crisis, central banks did not put private assets on their balance sheets, which they did in the fixed income space. So in terms of how alts can be used in portfolios over the long term, ultimately it will be depending on the investor objectives, their liquidity and other constraints, which determines what alts categories or which mix of categories to use. But to put simply, if investors are looking for de-risking, Replacing public equities with fixed income-like alternatives and hybrid alternatives may offer a solution. And they are thinking of re-risking. Using hybrid alternatives and equity-like alternatives may offer an elegant solution. So I want to stick with a longer-term view here for a minute. And one theme that's become increasingly important over the past couple of years has been ESG. Can you share a little bit about how you see that taking hold in private markets, particularly in light of how quickly it's seemingly become mainstream on the public side of the equation? That's a fair point. The mainstreaming of ESG is already happening in the public market, especially equities and its integration into investment decision-making for generating greater returns and lower risk. It's arguably a lot harder to do and measure in the private markets, though we see this as a secular trend, which is here to stay. And we see ESG integration as good asset management and part of our investment proposition. If I bucket it into two parts of financial alternatives like private equity, private credit hedge funds, it's getting incorporated as part of diligence, factoring in sustainability considerations in the form of also active management, asset selection, and also seeking greater transparency. In real assets, it is arguably more visible. The advent of efficiency in the real estate space through green and healthy buildings is well known. But in other real assets, which are tangible assets, it's becoming very visible and again, part of the investment proposition. Let me give a couple examples. In infrastructure, which offers stable contractual cash flow driven returns, the ongoing transition to a low carbon economy has created a pressing need for investments in renewable energy adoption and provisioning essential services like water and power. In transportation, which we think of as moving infrastructure, such as maritime assets that actually carry 80 to 90% of the world's goods. A combination of regulations to get new age fuel efficient vehicles that use hybrid or eco-friendly fuels has created a need for long-term capital providers for building these technologically advanced fleets. At the same time, providing resilient returns to investors who are seeking contractual cash flows from strong counterparties. Timber is yet another example where investors can access optionality via demand for timber and sustainable housing for generating yield while taking advantage of the natural carbon capture and offsets that forests can offer in a world which is gravitating towards net zero. From a framework and practices perspective, this can be utilized as a tool for tilting portfolios, 
with the goal of, again, doing well by doing good and generating stronger risk-adjusted returns in support of more sustainable investment outcomes. Yeah, I think that that's something that we're probably going to be talking about for the foreseeable future. So we'll have to have you back to check in and expand further. I want to kind of bring this to a head with two final questions. The first has to do with access. So historically, access to alternatives has been reserved for the endowments, the foundations, the institutions of the world. But as access is broadening out, and that's something that you and I have written about in the LTCMA papers over time, what are some of the themes that investors should be keeping in mind? And can you share some, at least in your view, some of the best ways of accessing the alternative assets? Yeah, it's a topic of big debate in the alternative space, which is access and how to seek these investments. So access is improving. And we talked about alternatives becoming essential categories from an optional category due to the various outcomes they solve for alpha, income-driven returns, diversification. Now, alternatives have traditionally been the sole domain of institutions, and typically the large ones, and also the ultra-high net worth space. In fact, in our 2021 long-term capital market assumptions report, which David, you and I worked together on, in the all-specific theme piece titled Alternatives from Optional to Essential, we show that large, and let's call them more unconstrained investors, like endowments and foundations, sovereign wealth funds, large public pensions, and also ultra high net worth individuals have one thing in common, which is all of them have large alternative allocations. As high as 50% of total assets at the highest level for some of these unconstrained entities. These investors have had the realization that more is better in terms of sourcing alts in their portfolios. But there are also other large capital market segments. Institutional investors like insurance companies and corporate pensions have also been increasing the allocation, albeit in conjunction with their liquidity and regulatory constraints. Mid-institutional categories a new entrant also for seeking access. And so is the advent of retail investors tapping into alternatives via new structures. Now, the advent of finding right structures is creating a lot of innovation in the industry. So there are semi-liquid perpetual life vehicles interval funds, investment trusts, non-traded vehicles, which are all getting formed and which will only improve access issue in the times to come. And we see rising allocations over the next decade for both institutional and retail investors and having an asset allocation framework, investment process, diversified access points, and ability to execute will become essential for investment managers to meet the growing demands which investors have. In summary, I'd say for large investors, who are already well invested in the old space, they are looking for bespoke or completion solutions. Whereas for the new entrants who are seeking alternative exposures, we think that a diversified approach to tapping alternatives is more suitable for getting into the space. Excellent. So we've spent a lot of time today covering what's going on in alts, and we spent a lot of time on the opportunities. But maybe to close out here, just so that we're balanced, what are some of the caution signs or the risks that particularly new entrants to this space need to be aware of as they think about building allocations, building alternative portfolios? What should people be keeping an eye on here going forward? Yes. So these benefits do come with trade-offs. There are many trade-offs in alternative investing. I'm going to highlight a few. So illiquidity risk is one trade-off. There's dispersion of returns. There is tail risk. Illiquidity, for example, in the private markets, is actually needed to generate operational improvements or source and manage assets in the private markets. It's important for investors to understand the benefits and trade-offs of alternatives across the illiquidity spectrum, and especially in the context of their own liquidity tolerance and investment time horizon, and then ensure a diversified execution to generate the outcomes they seek. 
and alternative implementation styles and structures are key and illiquidity comes in many flavors from daily to quarterly to quarterly to semi-annual with locks to long locks. And these trade-offs, again, each of these trade-offs are not equally distributed across different alternatives. Another trade-off is dispersion. Again, dispersion in alternatives comes in two flavors for capital appreciation or volatility mitigating alternatives like private equity and hedge funds. Tapping manager dispersion is key, which could be very high relative to, say, in the core alternative space. Because for such assets, which are higher quality, tapping intracategory dispersion, which could be high year to year, is key. So there are different kinds of dispersion, and this is relevant both across and within the categories. Does active management is better. And then from a tail risk perspective, the idea that returns are not follow a normal bell curve and individual categories of alternatives can have drawdown events, building a well-diversified portfolio which spans alternative categories, styles, sectors, and geographies is the remedy to diminish this, as alternatives do have a lot of non-correlation versus each other. So we think broader is better, and it's important for investors to understand also the apples-to-apples -apples risk and return measurement issues which will leave that discussion for another day. So I will say that investors appear to have reached the conclusion that the long-term benefits of alternatives in private markets do outweigh these challenges. And then from an asset allocation perspective, we believe that for building alternative portfolios, more is better, broader is better, and also active is better. I think that's perfect. You know, maybe to put a bow on it, alternatives, as you've always said to me, not only help diversify public market holdings, but they can diversify one another as well. And I think that that's something we really need to impress upon our clients here as the access to this asset class continues to improve going forward. So uh, with that, Polkit, always a pleasure. Thank you again for joining me and uh, looking forward to having you back on the channel sometime soon. Great. Thanks for having me, David. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on February 10th, 2022. Not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.
To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 1976015861586K, this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only. If you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, JPMorgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved.